Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by our friend Kate Penner. Kate is a figure skating super fan, so we decided to chat with her and have her give us the rundown on the sport to give us a better idea of what to be looking for during the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Throughout the discussion, we compare and contrast the sport with ballet, and at the end, she answers questions that were submitted to us by listeners via Instagram. As a note, this episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 8th. Since recording, there has been significant developments regarding drug test results from the Russian team that arose on February 9th. We are joined today by our friend, Kate Penner. Hi, Kate. How are you? Hello. I am doing really well, but exceedingly sleep deprived. <laughs> and we've only gotten through one and a half events. <laughs> You're of course referring to your sleep, um, being sleep deprived because of watching the Olympics and figure skating, which is exactly why we have you here today, because you know what's going on. We don't know what's going on, but we know we like to watch it. And I think that a lot of our listeners probably feel the same way, especially because there's that connection kind of to ballet. So we know a lot of ballet dancers want to watch it or enjoy watching it. So we want to hear from you. We want you to give us some primer, give us some info. We're going to talk about some of the crossover between ballet and figure skating and that kind of thing. So we're going to dive in. But before we start, I want to hear your origin story and how you became the most super fan of all super fans. A figure okay. I was born in the mid eighties, which means that my critical developmental years overlapped with what's considered a golden era in American skating. So Paul Wiley, Christy Yamaguchi, Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, and even outside of that, Surya Bonali, Katarina Vitt, like big, big names in skating and skating being on the television every weekend, primetime, which Right. You know, it's, we might talk about that later in this conversation, but this sport has really 
sort of shrunk in terms of how mainstream it's considered in the last 30 years. Um, and so that was the beginning. Like I was very interested and my parents are more sort of like sports leaning people in terms of the physical activities that they do. They love the theater and they were really excited though, to see me interested in a sport. And so <laughs> like, I was counts. going to champions <laughs> on ice. Like we were seeing this live. It was thrilling, cool. but then there was sort of like a pause. I mean, I was still watching the competitions all the time through middle school, high school. And then I got to college and YouTube launched in college. And I remember being part of this conversation in the dining hall where we were like, why would anyone want to watch streaming video? Like what, what is that? (laughs) What are the uses of that? We did not have smartphones when YouTube launched, right? We did not have all these things that allowed us to be able to like, do you, do you tape it on your digital camera and then upload it? That's so weird, right? (laughs) this one afternoon, I remember sitting in my room and I'm procrastinating some substantial assignment. And somehow I thought to search for Nancy Kerrigan and I found a video of her short program from the Lillehammer games from 94. And this was a tape that I had like worn out. And I very quickly realized that there was this whole army of figure skating fans who had taken mountains of VHSs and digitize that for the children listening a, a VHS is a cassette <laughs> tape that we used to record television shows on oh. before we had streaming television. And of that is such a trip. Right? <laughs> there were all these fans who had been recording figure skating competitions faithfully for decades and they had digitized them all and edited them down and uploaded them. And there was this shorthand that I noticed, and this was before YouTube was like, do you want to watch this next? Or just started playing the next video without even asking you. Right. Right. So I type in another name and another name comes up and I type in someone else. And before I knew it, I was kind of off to the races. I would look up like everyone who skated in a certain competition. And I would rewatch that entire competition from start to finish. And I was like, well, if I'm procrastinating, it'll not really be as bad of procrastination if I'm learning about it. So I go. started <laughs> myself the jumps and the spins and the footwork sequences. And that was kind of the rebirth. So that was the mid two thousands. So you never tried your hand at ice skating. I did. did. Um, when it came time to think about lessons, my parents, I now see sabotaged my development by being <laughs> like, you know, that skating happens in the middle of the night. You know that? you have to be there at 4am. And I was like, 4am. And they were like, whereas with ballet, you get to be with your friends after school. And I'm like, Oh, and they're like, ballet is three minutes away. Skating is 45 minutes away. (laughs) And so I was like, okay. And they're like, and you only have to pick, you can only pick one. And I was like, Oh, okay. I think I'm going to ballet it is with ballet, (laughs) but it has, I have tried my hand as an adult. A little bit. Right. So what are some of the differences though, bet- between the training? Like why would they not necessarily gel with one another? Like, could someone conceivably do both? There have been a few people who have done both. And I think similar to ballet coexisting with anything else, skating is very similar that at a certain age, there's a lot, there's just too much time commitment required. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's too much physicality that's quite specific to that form. So there's a lot of concern around injury 
And it's also very expensive, very, very expensive, Mm -hmm. but sort of on many fronts, it usually the other things tend to peter out eventually. Right. Right. Can you tell us some of the differences in the training? Cause you've already brought that. I mean, that's fascinating to me. I don't, why is it in the middle of the night? Like what, like you already have, it's, it's by yourself. It sounds like, right. You don't have like group skating training as we do in ballet. Like what are, what are the primary differences? And you've also brought up costs already. Tell give us a rundown of, yeah. of what training and skating is like. Well, first I'm just reclaiming my identity as not being a morning person. There would be some people that would describe that as early morning, but I refuse If the sun is not oh. up. This oh, is the middle no. of the night. We are <laughs> at the rain early. It tends to be by seniority. So the people who have more normal functional hours are the senior, most, most experienced people at a particular club and the lower division you are, the less competitive you are, the more of a beginner you are, the further outside of the normal business hours you end up being. Wow. So that's one piece of it. And I suppose that's a bit true for ballet as well. As you move from like Saturday mornings, once a week to like Saturday and Tuesday, and then we're like a Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it starts to just like hit a more normal, sustainable timing, but right ballet never happened in the middle of the night. (laughs) Sure didn't. uh, I remember having a class. My earliest warm-up class was at a seven 30 school show AM. And I was like, I could never be a skater. This is, this is not (laughs) it for me. The Uh, training is the show. Is it seven 30? No, the war, the company class was at seven for the nine o'clock show. Yeah. I gave myself the earliest. I gave myself my earliest warm-up ever in California because I was jet lagged. So just like a week or two ago, I did a 6.45 a.m. bar. The, the I am Jamie. <laughs> <that it's... laughs> it like takes my breath away <laughs> so early. It's too, and, too many things have to well, move. So the athletes right now are in Beijing, which is 13 hours ahead, and they are live at East Coast primetime. So really in the morning for them, right? Yeah. Their usual, their usual competitions are at the same time as like a performance for us. So like 6 PM to 11 PM generally spaced. And for the first half of the Olympics, and this happened in Pyeongchang in 2018 as well, they're skating at like nine 30 in the morning. And they're taking that into account as they practice in the weeks leading up. Like it's not a secret what the time schedule will be, but it is very strange. And as they're going to practice ice in the days leading up, there are various practice sessions you can go to. I mean, there are some teams who are saying, okay, I want to simulate what that's going to be like. Right. And the bus from the hotels or the lodging that they have to the rink is two hours about. Oh. And then oh. there's about a one hour off ice warm up before you put your skates on and get out on the ice. So they are on these buses at like 4 35 AM. Oh getting to the rink, doing their hour warm up, then getting their skates on and then doing a session from like 8:30 to 9:30 a.m. 8:30. Why do they do them so dirty? Why are they 2 hours away? Are are there because others? NBC, oh, I don't know about the layout of things, but I was like the reason we're doing oh. it in the morning is unfortunately because of us. Right. But then oh. after you. the first half of the competitions, <laughs> we're going to switch to it being a normal time for them. And if I look like this, thank goodness it's a podcast. So the audience can't see me, but if I look like this now, and I've just been watching from 8 30 PM to like 12 30 AM, we're about to start waking up 
in the middle of the night for this, oh, wow. which is not, it's not new to me as a super fan. Cause there are regularly lots of competitions every year in Japan and China, but it's not my freshest experience. So I want to yes. go through the warm up conversation. So this kind of goes along with the training conversation and we'll get back to that a little bit um later on as well. But so you said there's an off ice warm up, there's an on ice warm up for an hour, then they're competing. So what are those like three or two segments of their warm up kind of look like and how does that compare to what we do as ballet dancers? What's interesting to me what was really shocking was that we have a very ritualized style of physically preparing ourselves. It's essentially the same since we're like 11 years old Mm -hmm. onwards, which I suppose is the same as theirs and that they've been doing the same thing since they were 11, Mm -hmm. but we are very thorough, like very thorough. Right. And theirs is like, we're stretching, we're doing crunches, we're doing some calisthenics. And then all of a sudden we're like basically doing dry land, like double and triple axles. I mean, we're le- we're going to a single axle and then like a double sure. axle, triple axle. You'll see pairs working lifts off of the ice, like getting Ooh. their sort of balance. And that level of partnering is absolutely wild to we see. To wild. That. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're working through the kinks of things, but the idea of like, you know how we have an hour and a half of class. Yeah. Mm-hmm maybe more. And Mm -hmm. then we're going into rehearsal of our particular choreography and repertoire. Right. Theirs is like that hour, that amount of time is like from cold, cold stretching to to we're doing stuff off the ice to then foot preparation, oddly, very similar. I mean, like we're taping toes, we're like wrapping Mm. ankles, we're getting things situated in the boot. There are a lot of foot and ankle injuries, which probably surprises absolutely no one. (laughs) (laughs) People are like, wow, how do they land on one leg so hard? And I'm like, well, sometimes not. Well, yeah, like it's (laughs) very, this is very taxing. There are there are not a lot of secrets. I mean, it's incredible what you're seeing, but yeah, the, the pounding is very serious on the Ooh. same leg. Every jump, someone lands, you have a landing leg and that is your landing leg, I mean, but they do that. You know, some of right. them do Pilates, some of them do yoga. Some of them sort of are jogging in place. Some are mixing all of these things. So and then we're getting the like laid out, like, like you're saying, like we all do, like if the three of us were to do a class, it would be very, very similar. But if we were ice, you know, figure skaters, we would maybe do something completely different. Yes. So, and everyone That's almost has... sounds like a warm up that someone might do before their ballet class. Right. Right. Like, That's what I was going to say. I was like, I need to do yoga before I start this bar. Right. Yes. And that's so weird. Yes. So wild to me. Wow. To me, I'm like, and you're about to skate out onto an ice cube. Like, right. I'm just like, we're not warm. Like what? <laughs> yeah. We're getting that deep warmth from the inside out. You know, that's what you need for that. Yeah. Wow. It just, the level of warmth that I would need would be like an August 21st steps on Broadway, no air conditioning, <laughs> like just, I am like silly putty experience uh-huh. before I could feel right. confident enough to go out and do some of those things. Right. And they're just like, you know, we're doing high knees. We're doing some like lunging, we're stretching. And then we just, it really is much. It's not that they're not warming up. It's that their understanding of warming up is just, it escalates much more quickly. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. they, 
So they have on a normal practice day, their sessions, it kind of depends on length. If you're a young skater, your day looks very different from these skaters, but your session might be an hour. You're working on at certain parts of the, of the season, you're working on certain segments. You might be working on building a program. You might be working on training a new element. And then once you get into the competitive season, you're trying to get through a run through hitting all of the elements as high level as you can. So each of these elements have different added features that make them more and less difficult. And so you might be saying, I'm going to try to go for a higher level of this particular element this season. And once you get towards September, October, you're trying to really go for consistency for those goals, get through those warmups and uh, run throughs again and again and again. And hopefully the goal is by the time that you're in the competitive season, you're not doing substantial training of new elements. You're trying to get consistency behind you of the things that you have figured out over the summer. But when you're at a competition, you get your hour, you're probably working on a couple things that you have planned out with your coach who's standing at the boards and the coach is like so important, especially at the Olympics where I would just be beside myself every day with oh anxiety gosh. and nerves. Um, and then you'll go back to the dorm and then the next day, like when you have a competition, there's usually like a 30 minute kind of warm up, and you go off the ice when they go off the ice, they take this is what's so anxiety induced. Okay. I'm going to say later, but they go off the ice. They take their boots off. When it's time to skate, you have a six minute warm up. You skate out there. They introduce the people in that group. You have six minutes and everyone is trying to do their warm up at the same time. And ah. yeah, <laughs> no, no, the higher, no. there are like some right of way rules, but as we all know, there are right of way rules in a ballet class too. And these people are moving much faster than we do on dry land. Right. right. And they're not used to having people around them. Like in ballet, we're used to right. people around us. That would us. just be so awful. <laughs> yeah. So they are trying to do their six minute warm up. Everyone else is too. Then they'll leave the ice and they'll be able to skate out as the person who skates before them comes off. So you get like a little bit of time, but I've really never, it's very uncommon to see someone do something pretty substantial in that short 60 seconds before their program starts. They're mostly trying to be like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Right, right. I'm ready. I see like yeah. some marked jumps kind of like, you know, there'd yes. be like a single, like I can tell sometimes that they're marking things kind of like we're trying to get our legs like. underneath us. We're right. trying to get on mm -hmm. our leg. Right. That's like, but as someone who like, I used to just do the whole ballet before the ballet went, like, I just like, that gives me such anxiety. I'd be like, you know, I would just, you know, for hoops and nutcracker, I'd have to like, I have to do my double six times. That's the magic number. And then I'll know that it'll go well in the show, but, Oh, you just missed that one. And now you got to try again. And like, but they're just like, Oh, I'm doing my quadruple axle into my other thing. And well, then what's interesting <laughs> is that you will see the psychology completely diverge. Right. right. Like you will see people just like you. And I encourage everyone who's listening. I, this is not paid by Peacock, but if you have $5 to spare, <laughs> the Peacock app allows you to watch the six minute warm up for each of these in this continuous stream. And you will see people who are like, I am here. I'm nervous. That's normal, but I'm fine. And we're going through our singles, then our doubles, then our triples. And if we're in the men's event, our quads, right. And actually if we're in the women's event too now, okay. and then there are other people who you can see in their face, like they're going down the rabbit hole and it's just <laughs> like, 
have we ever been there or what, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, something weird happened or someone skated into your pattern, which is the path that you're carving as you're trying to do your element. And there are some people are like, it's fine. I'm sharing the ice with people right now. And there are other people who are like, this is not how I this is an omen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. It's, yeah. I mean, we have so many conversations like this, like about how, like how different people are. And we've had people on the podcast that are just like, so chill about everything. I mean, it reminds me of this, this um, former principal with Pennsylvania ballet, Lily Di Piazza, who's just like one of the calmest people. And I was there for her Odette Odile debut. And mm-hmm. literally it's 10 minutes before the curtain came up. I it was very late and I just came in like to get my tickets from someone who's doing, you know, minor work. And Lily comes over to me and wants to have a whole conversation. She's just like, oh my God, I haven't seen you in so long. Like, Were you a vessel you for her nerves? Maybe. But I was like, Girl, I need you to go do your variation right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, then she, she did a great show and she was so at ease. And I just like... It couldn't be me. I just was, I thought it was so crazy. Like the when contact. I'm there either in the audience or on my couch, or I'm at a debut for a friend that I know, Right. it's like, I'm beside myself. Oh like, yeah. I'm just like, oh my God, the moment is here. Like, I'm not ready. Like I'm not ready. <laughs> they seem fine, but there's like, I'm in this weird space where there's nothing I can control. There's nothing I can do that. That's a lie. I have a candle that I light. And this is a common practice among very intense figure skating fans. Like we have little tchotchkes that we trot out and we're just like, whatever works. Okay. Like I would do that for performances. You do that for other people. I love it. You're just like sending that energy over. I love it. (laughs) And, you know, you see people skate out there and they're like, they seem fine. I think whatever should be in them is actually inside me right now. There you go. (laughs) Their vessel. I took a screenshot on my stories of watching Jason Brown skate in the men's short program. I was sitting on my couch. I had not gotten up in an hour. My heart rate was 126 beats per minute. Like (laughs) I was a mess people. Like it's, it's just very high stress. But what I was saying earlier that I could not believe was if you skate last in the skate group, a lot of people leave the ice after the six minute warm up and take off their boots. Nuh-uh. Yeah. No. And then relace them. You know, they listen to music. A lot of them have like beats, like really noise canceling things. Most yeah. of the time they do not want to know what the state of the scoring has been so far that evening right. because it ultimately does not really change your goal, which is to right. skate right. as well as you possibly can. So a lot of the time when they're sitting down to kiss and cry after they have skated is the first time that they're looking at the standings. And sometimes you'll see people be like, oh, what happened earlier? You know, in a good way or a bad way? Just they're just um, processing. Just like surprised because you anticipate that you're going to be seeing certain names at the top of the of the standings and not seeing them there. And you know, having been so tunnel vision that you don't you weren't aware of what was going on. Right. But kind of weird because it's a pretty empty Olympics because of COVID. Yeah. It's very hard usually with a full house to not feel the energy of whether people are doing really, really well or really poorly. So the fact that they take their boots off and then put them back on, I'm just like, absolutely not. No, like I would be day up until that month. Well, it used to make me panic when um, dancers would change their point shoes in the middle of a show. Yeah. I know people, People would do that like in a ballet like theme. Like it'd be like first creation and then I'm gonna change them before the pot, like stuff like that. Like but I, I you can like, like oh. but you can be in the back there like up on point feeling what it feels like. 
And like, yeah. you can't with ice skating until you're like out there. Right. Um, right. Let's yes. go, let's go back for a second. There's so much, there's so much to talk about. Um, yes. So let's talk about, we were kind of texting about this the other night when we were preparing for what we wanted to discuss um, kind of the difference in not just the actual training, but the concept of how the training is like with ballet, we, we talk to many people, right. And I don't want to generalize everybody's um, trajectory, but generally you start at a small school, you um, maybe go to a summer course, then you go to a professional school and then you're in a company. Maybe you stop at a um, college along the way, right. It's kind of like that build up to increase your training. And there's a lot of opportunities once you get to summer program colleges, professional schools to have scholarships. Um, so to help dancers who might not otherwise be able to afford their training. Um, let's talk about how that's so different in figure skating and kind of the impact that that makes, um, Kate, like we were discussing in some countries versus other countries. Yeah. The United States figure skating is exorbitantly expensive and it's on the skaters family that them as individuals to pay for everything. So not just the coaches, but a choreographer to make the programs, a music editor to cut the music, which I know there are people who are like, I can't believe they pay people for that. It sounded bad. Like sometimes the music cuts are very (laughs) to our ears. Um, Pilates off ice, you know, PT, spit, if you have any PT, any additional. So frequently, if you want to address a particular skill, like spins or jumps, you might bring in a specialist to work on that. Those people cost extra. Wow. It is really wildly expensive. It's like a year of college tuition from a very early age onward. Wow. And what is difficult is like in ballet, you know, we do a lot of, you're kind of describing this funnel where you start at your local school and then you move to a slightly better school and then you move to another better school and then you're in college. And really the goal is to create like a person who has some longevity of a career. Mm -hmm. This is really an Olympic sport has a very different timing to it. So there's a lot of emphasis behind speed of getting those elements together learning how to jump very, very quickly, learning how to jump and then do doubles and then do triples. And so you'll find people are really one, the number of people that we have moving through the pipeline in the United States is extremely small based on where are rinks and who can afford this. And then two, what is their foundational technique? It's entirely dependent on where they grew up, Mm -hmm, which rink they happen to walk into. And as you get to more and more difficult elements. The analog in ballet is true as well, which is a technique that can do a single pirouette cannot necessarily handle a double pirouette, cannot necessarily absorb a triple pirouette. Right. Let me be clear that jumps are more difficult than pirouettes, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's, it's the same idea. Whereas that if you right. have a kink in the system, Mm-hmm. the mistakes are not as fatal when you're trying to do a single jump than when you're trying right. to do a double jump. And when you're trying to do a triple jump and then you grow cause you're 14 or 15 and then mm-hmm. it becomes more and more difficult. So the foundational technique is all over the place really depends on who you train with. And there's a lot of speed pushing people through the elements as they move. So you'll see people at domestic na- national championships here who 
you know, have substantial technical challenges. It's really rare to see it all come together in one person and make the Olympic team. And it's just a very, very expensive sport, prohibitively expensive. Lots of people retiring because it's too expensive. Right. So ballet has done, you know, some work in the past decade or so, primarily, I feel, um, in trying to um, make things more accessible in that way. Ballet is, of course, also very expensive, also has a problem with being elitist. Um, but is ice skating doing anything about that? Or is it just, I mean, is it just baked into the system? Like, do they have programs where someone who's super talented, I mean, you know, like I, I, again, this is my only reference for this, but you know, I saw I, Tanya, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tanya Harding uh, was ridiculed for basically being poor. And how have we moved forward in the past 30 years in sport? I would say there hasn't been a systemic effort, mm-hmm. like an institutional level effort. There are small programs here and there that crowdsource and fund scholarships that try to help individual skaters. Sometimes the size of the scholarship is just a drop in the bucket. That's a challenge. Cause we're talking like this person needs $30,000 and you just Ooh. gave them a check for $1,500. Right. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Um, there are yeah. skaters and it's not just the United States, you know, there are skaters who are on GoFundMe emergency. I need new boots in the middle of a oh, season. Oh my gosh. And how much are boots? I never thought about that. They're around a thousand dollars. How long do they last for much longer? I actually think my shoes are more expensive probably when you add it up. Yeah, that's true. Sorry to interrupt you. Someone like if you're an elite senior man and you're doing these quads, these, you need multiple pairs of boots ready to go and you need to be ready ideally for the boots, like worst case scenario, boots break down. You have a pair that you can put on the blades and the boots are separate things. The blades get mounted onto the boots. When you're us, you're either, Oh, I only think about this as like a rental skate or like I bought maybe like a $90 skate at like a goods store. When you're that level, if there's a very common blade company and a set of boot companies and you're marrying the two together. Most wow. of the athletes on Team USA have these provided for them in exchange for that company getting to tell all the young skaters, this person wears our boots, this person wears our blades. Um, right. But, you know, when you're a young person, you're buying the boots, you're buying the blades. So if you ever happen to be living near a national championships, you will see on the concourse, the boot distributors that have a stall and all these young skaters who are so excited to get their first pair of that sort of like more custom high level. Your freeds, if you will. That's well, actually <laughs> these very, the boots that everyone is lusting after these days are similar to a Gainer Minden. Are, are you saying they're similar in construction, but like, does that matter aesthetically for a boot? Mm. It was shocking to me. Very similar conversation to when Gainers first came on the scene. The big pushback around these boots were that they destroyed the line of the leg that you couldn't point your foot. I mean, you can barely point your foot in a darn boot to begin with, but you really couldn't point your foot on the end of these. They were super flexed. They looked too clunky. They had distracting profile to them that didn't look right. And the Mm. pushback was when they're breaking in boots, it like shreds their feet. Right. It's so painful. They're so hard. They're trying to do so much. And it like it's around the ankle and down into Ooh. the, into the toes and stuff like that. Yeah. 
So there were a lot of people who were like, I have terrible foot injuries with every other boot and Ideas, which are the brand. Right. Um, I don't need to break them in. They do the same thing with the hair dryer. Yeah. That gainers oh, do where you wow. put them in the oven or shape them to your foot. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. Where you can kind of get them. They're made of neoprene and non um, organic materials, more synthetic. And so it's been totally almost every single skater that you'll see at this Olympics. Where's these boots now? It's really hmm. been in the last like 10 years, an enormous shift towards these. Mm-hmm. I can name the people who don't basically as much easier than right. naming really. Do. Yeah. So going back to, um, the efforts that have been made to, um, you know, support, um, skaters in this financial capacity, what are some of the other countries doing, like say Russia or China, how is that different compared to, um, what's happening in the U S with training? Great question. Both Russia and China use the school system, which is completely different in the United States. It's, Oh, you're interested in skating, go sign up here. It's, (laughs) and then pay us. Yes. Here it's, we are casting a broad net. We are looking for people who are interested in skating. Come try out. There's a lot of questions of, are you flexible? Do you have good proportions? Are you strong? Are you focused? There's a little bit, we've seen, you know, the children of theater street when they do the auditions for uh, the school and they take measurements and they're kind of evaluating, would this person have a body that works really well for figure skating? It offers more people opportunity. Their N, the number of students that they have moving through the pipeline is much higher. And then as they work through the system, we have tests as well in the United States, which is like testing at different levels, kind of like the Royal Academy of Dance, where you're being monitored and you're doing different technical skills. Same thing there. And if you aren't staying abreast of what's expected of you at different checkpoints, you're asked to leave. Oh, do you know what this reminds me of, Michael? When Kate was telling me this, um, when we were texting the other day, it made me think of Christine Shevchenko of American Ballet Theater. She um, was telling us when we interviewed her on the podcast that she did a very similar thing in Ukraine. Like that was how they found her. And it was it was very much the same, like. The t- she was very young and the testing that they did initially was like literally looking like point your toes, bend, you know, like how, how flexible are you? You know, things like that, that aren't actually like do a ton do or whatever. Right. And so, and that's another way. So I think in, within the ballet community in those countries, they're also doing a similar system, right? Yeah, it really, I mean, it offers way more people the opportunity to participate. The notion of continuing to participate, even if you're having mixed success developing on the technical side is not something that it exists in those countries. Right. Like it is, once you get to the senior levels, you are funded by the government. It is a national sports federation and it's very much part of their national identity, especially in Russia to be very good at the sport. This is a mainstream sport for them. These young women and men are megastars there. Right. They are very high profile there. When they look at sports news here, everyone is talking about football, basketball, baseball. When you look at sports news there, we're looking at figure skating. We're looking at hockey. We're looking at gymnastics. Like these are their big, those Olymp that Olympic stage moment. They are representing their country. They're representing their nation and how dominant they are through that mm-hmm. training system into the sport. So you just have 
way more people moving through it and it centralizes and is very coordinated. You also have majors at universities that train the coaches through a unified technical approach, which is very different from here. Yeah. And there are coaches that differ in different like approaches, but the number, like the range is not is not what it is here. There's so many similarities I feel here. I mean, cause you know, like in France you, uh, for ballet, you can't just go in and say, I'm a teacher. You have to be like certified or whatever through some central system. Um, and again, like when you're t- talking about like how it is like purely, I guess, talent-based talent being, if we mean talent to be like, can you jump, do your legs go up? Right. Like, whereas in America, yes, there's a disadvantage, but someone who's really talented in a different way, someone who has a beautiful movement quality or like just a special on your timeline. Yeah. Like they're a late bloomer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that it doesn't leave room for that in the system in Russia or China. So it it reminds me a lot of ballet. Cause like, yeah, when you think about people that have had careers here, but their body types might not be what is perceived to be perfect in somewhere like Russia. Um, you know, they would never make it in the Mariinsky or Bolshoi, but we love them, you know. We do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk There's about something some- for everyone. Yeah. Let's talk about somebody's body who I'm sure the Russians think is very perfect. And I might say, <laughs> I do. It is pretty <laughs> I want to talk about um, the 15 year old Russian woman figure skater because Mila Valieva. She is something else. What a beauty. I like to say Camilla Cabello. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to let you say her name because I was like, I'm going to absolutely mess that up. (laughs) Valieva. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so wild. Yeah. She is. This is her first year competing as a senior um, internationally. She is 15 years old. So wild. The entire Russian women's team has the same coach. They are from the same school. Her name is Eteri Tutberitse. I'm probably not being amazing with that pronunciation, but better than others. We'll just call her Eteri from here on out. And she's really like the the next generation of Alina Zagitova, who was the 2018 champion. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting to see the balletic inspired mm-hmm, nature right. of her skating. And there are many skaters that go to a Terry. So skaters end up at a Terry after they have all their triples. A Terry is not someone who works with you from when you are, you know, seven years old or something like that. Mm. So there are a good chunk of skaters who have this very elegant sense of line. Excellent. Clearly like they have this proprioception that's much inherited from, you know, taking a ballet class or learning ballet. They must learn ballet, right? Is that part of their training in Russia? Yes, but it's a very, for the purpose of figure skating flavor Mm. of ballet. Right, right, right. Yeah. And you see that hyper flexibility. I mean, that Beelman that ends up not even being a catch blade, catch boot, catch leg. And she's like, it's up to her calf on the back of the head. Yeah. It's really incredible. Agon who? I know. <laughs> I mean, what's very sad, unfortunately, is that one of the trademarks, one of the hallmarks of, so what's amazing about Camila is that she is the first female figure skater to land a quadruple jump cleanly at the Olympic games. There are quite a few, all three of the Russian women who are representing the Russian Olympic committee 
are able to land quadruple jumps. And that really comes from a very different approach to training. Mm -hmm. And a Terry's major focus is that if you are looking at sort of the physical trajectory of someone, the moment that they are going to be in the women's division, the moment they're going to be able to land a quadruple jump is when they are the strongest and the smallest. And there's like this balancing of those two things. So at Russian nationals, you do not see 18 and 19 year old skaters. You see 15, 14, Mm. 15, 16, 17. Right. They're already done by You put on more muscle mass by the time you're 18, 19. The taller you get, the more difficult it is to rotate. The bigger you are, the more difficult it is to rotate. And so they sort of hit this moment where we're just drilling the technique, which some people feel great about. Other people are like, I don't love it. Mm-hmm. it. And Camila, I will say is of, of those skaters. She's quite incredible to watch. The jumps are big. They have a lot of ballon. I, that there's not even a word for it in figure skating. They just would say height, but to me, it's mm-hmm. not height. It's like, there's actually this like timing pop that feels buoyant, right? Like lift, right. It's like, yeah. it's like yeah. that lower abdominal lift up. Yeah. I know exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just like, uh, up right. into the air. Right. It's, there's something extra happening that I really enjoy watching in, in her jumps. But I, you know, I think, will she be here in two seasons? Probably not. That's so sad. I know. Right. It's very oh. exciting though, to see it happening here. Sure. At this right. Yeah. I know. I mean, Russia has a different system entirely. So this is maybe not relevant to them, but thinking about when you're talking about all the money that people pump into their ice skating careers, is there ever a payoff? Do you ha- like, how famous do you have to be? Like, at what point is it like, okay, the, like, I guess hundreds of thousands of dollars that we poured into this and now I've retired at 20. Now what? Now what? This is not a happy answer. <laughs> I would say we need to be invited to be on tours the tours, the stars on ice tours are not as lucrative as they once were champions on ice folded in the two thousands. There are not a lot, a lot of opportunities for ice shows in the United States. There's like Disney on ice that kind of happens as well. So there are tours in Canada. The big tours that you would love to be invited on are in Japan, Korea, and there are shows in Russia and Europe. And to be someone who is American or in North America, who's invited on there, I would need to be a world champion, ideally an Olympic medalist. I would need to have really reached like the upper echelons of the competitive platform of my sport. And then maybe I would get, you know, the invitation to go and, and perform there as part of those shows. And so it's very understandable. Sometimes people get very frustrated with skaters for saying like, oh, why are they showing up to this competition? So untrained or so underprepared. And it's like, oh, well, they had an invitation to do a show in Japan. You're hoping to develop a Japanese fan base because very popular sport there. There's a lot of opportunity. And to your point, Michael, it's very expensive and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's next or just get a little bit more exposure and a little bit more opportunity out of what is a very short career. Hmm. 
One thing that struck me, and I want to, now we can move maybe to pairs is that the pairs team for the U S right there. I think that the, I know, I'm sorry. I don't know their names. I'm terrible, but the woman's here, I think is 30 and Alexa Kneerum and Brandon Fraser. Yeah. And there, so would that be like, when I heard that I was kind of like, Oh, like I don't, it struck me because I feel like we're not seeing anyone of that age at all. So are they like, (laughs) you know, too old? Um, Yeah. Paris is a little different. I will say that it's not uncommon to see someone in their thirties be in the pairs discipline. It is very uncommon to see it in the women's discipline Mm -hmm. and even the men. So there are a few who are very few Mm -hmm. who are over 30, but there are a couple with pairs. Um, and both of those skaters had former partners and those partnerships ended for a range of reasons. Um, Alexa was skating with her husband, Chris, who is now an assistant coach for their team. And Chris was just mentally done really after 2018 Olympics. And he had always just known that Alexa had an interest in continuing. And so Mm. this is not like an awkward thing for them. And then Brandon had a former partner who unfortunately had some terrible knee injuries that put a ceiling on how competitive they could really be. And they ultimately decided to conclude their partnership. And he teamed up with Alexa um, two seasons ago. That's not very long, right? For something like pairs. If you were like, hey, we've known each other for two seasons. We should go to the Olympics and I'll throw you over my head. I would be like, no, thanks. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I barely know you. (laughs) Wait, so I want to go back to for just for a second. Sorry to take us off subject, but I'm just thinking since we're talking about men now, um, like why would that logic um, with the women not prevail for men that like you're better if you're, if you have less masks and you're younger and like you'll get around more easily. Like, does that, it doesn't seem like that's the same case for the men or is it? Great question. And I would love to sort of get someone who does a little bit more of like human development to check this, but men tend to develop explosive power, like in their late teens, early twenties into their mid twenties that is different from women generally Mm -hmm. in like the, in athletics. So you'll see that a lot of peaking with men in their sport tends to happen in their twenties. And especially for figure skating, we're looking at late teens is often considered quite young, but like early to mid twenties is that, is that spot where we're mixing strength and rotational speed. Cause the higher you can get yourself into the air, the more time you're going to have. So even if your body's a little bit bigger, if you can get much higher, you can rotate a bit slower and you'll get around three or four times. Right. But I believe me, there are men on all these national teams who are on very strict nutritional regimens to maintain their, the shape of their body. There was Mm -hmm. a funny interview with Adam Rippon who talked about living on his own. He was a men's team USA skater who was at the Pyeongchang Olympics And he really struggled with developing a consistent quad. And right when he was like about to start really training it for the first time, they have their off season in late spring and early summer. And he was living by himself away from his parents. And he decided to do this like workout regimen. And he like totally bulked up and like showed up at this new coach and was like, look at how fit I am. And the coach was like, like, what have you done? Like, (laughs) you are, your upper body is now carrying all this mass that you now Uh need to rotate. Like it needs to be, you'll notice that they don't have 
big upper bodies. Right. It's about the legs. Like we are really vaulting ourselves into the air. Mm -hmm. And so he always tells that story about how he like trashed his whole season because he was (laughs) trying to like lose the muscle that he'd gained over that. Oh no. I know. But it's very, it's interesting to like, think about where, what they're trying to, to achieve and what they're trying to do physically. That kind of makes me think how we talk about, um, where women's, um, center of gravity is in their hips versus men more in their shoulders. So how does that impact these crazy jumps as well? I think one thing that's really going to be difficult to see at normal speed while you're watching an event. But one of the ways that the Russian women end up doing quads is that they do this thing called pre-rotation, which is when they tap that topic into the ice, their upper body from the waist up starts to rotate and they'll actually leave the toe pick and the ice. The other foot will leave the ice too. And they'll be about halfway around by the time that that toe pick leaves the ice. And this is not something that the skating judges have yet really come down on as like bad technique, but it's certainly not considered ideal compared to someone who doesn't do that. It's like a little, but one of the challenges. Yeah, it is. It is technically a cheated takeoff, but it's not something that we deduct for. We do deduct for cheated landing. So the blade, whatever direction it was facing when we took off, that's where it needs to be. It needs to be a whole rotation when we come back down. Mm. But one of the problems that you'll see is that especially the women, but really everyone who's training these back injuries are very, very common. And especially if you're doing that pre-rotation where you're twisting and there are sort of three jumps, um, loop, lutz and flip that are kind of an analog of um, on the direction where you're turning mm-hmm. towards your standing leg. Mm-hmm. Those are the most affected by these substantial back injuries. So a lot of people mm-hmm. are asking you, where's Medvedeva? She won the silver medal in 2018. And unfortunately she like released a statement at the start of this season saying like, my back is so bad. Like I cannot do flip Lutz oh. and loop. Like I cannot right. turn Ooh. opposite from where the lower part of my body is facing. And so, especially within the way that the Russians are currently training, that's something that happens when you're looking at how these bodies work and how this much rotational force is having a serious effect on people. And imagine like how many reps you need to get to a place where you can be at the Olympics and land this confidently. So we're talking like hundreds, like thousands. Right. 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 I, I know that, that you're probably like a flip. I don't know what that is, but it just made me think of what, like an actual flip on ice. Who was the ice skater? Scott Hamilton. Oh, yeah. right. Wait, wasn't it Scott yeah. Hamilton that would do flips on the ice? Like Scott flips? does flips on the ice. He puts it in a show, but Surya was very right. frustrated oh. with her feeling about how she was being judged. And so flips are not allowed in, um, official programs. You can do them in an exhibition, but she put them in a, in a program as a, I don't care what you think message. So how was, how was she punished for that? Like just bad scores? Yes. Bad scores. It's a very, it's a very political sport. So if you upset people, yeah, (laughs) let's get into that. Um, you know, she was nearing retirement at that time. Um, it was, there were a lot, there were right after that, there were a lot of injuries, but certainly that was sort of like a big, I'm tanking my score. I know I'm taking my score. I don't care about what you think. And then at the end of the program, she finished facing the audience instead of the judges. So Ooh. she turned with her back to the judges. I know. 
I actually didn't realize that they faced the judges. It makes sense. I just never thought about it before, but yeah. Yeah. If you're facing away, it's usually like it's tasteful choreography, right? right? It's intentional. Um, but it's funny. Sometimes the boards are very similar on both sides and you're in a new rink all the time. So you'll see people accidentally get mixed up and at the end of their routine, sort of like turn around and be like, sorry about that. You're right there. Um, but yeah, she, she really, it, it hit her scores. And in general, when you do things, say you're in the middle of a, of a, of a competitive career, if you do things and you act out that way, you are, you know, less likely to get opportunity. So that's assignments to competitions. Your federation sends you to a competition, chooses to send you to a competition. So when you're looking at the season generally goes from August, September start to a series of international events, October through December, then we have the national championships, December and January, European championships, and what are called the four continents championships in January and February, and then world championships in March. Everyone takes a big old break. And then we repeat that whole thing again the next year. If you upset someone, you know, you might show up at a domestic competition or you might show up at an international competition and not get very good scores after that. There's a lot of subjectivity in terms of how these are scored and how these are marked. And it is not great to burn bridges that you currently right. want to walk over. Right. Right. How do, who, who even are the judges? Where do they come from? And how do we, how do we curry favor with them? Like what, what is, give us the political side of that. Oh my goodness. The parent federation is the international skating union, the ISU. Inside of that umbrella, there are federations for every country that has competitors. And those federations also train judges and technical specialists and referees. So there, when you look at the lineup of who's sitting there, each of those judges, like when they, when we show up to the Olympics, they actually assign, they do a draw of which countries are going to get to judge which events. Uh-huh. And then they do a draw of like which judges will be that country's representative very close to the event. Sure. So you can, if you go into the results page, if you type in like ISU results, Beijing Olympics, you can see the list of names. If you're on Peacock, you can see them introduced first <laughs> top of the event. Um, and you'll see which countries they come from. You can sort of type them in. And there are a lot of regional disagreements about whose artistry is more ideal, mm -hmm. whose skating skills are better, um, or whether skating skills are important at all. Um, <laughs> when I mean skating skills, I mean, deep plie, I mean, use of the edge of the blade. So like as if you're skiing, but on ice, so like mm -hmm. deep plie and pushing into the edges and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you'll see people really represent, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, expectedly judges from the United States will be very favorable to an American skater. Mm -hmm. judges from Canada will often be very favorable to American skater. Cause there's this like North America energy alliance. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and similarly, you will see very, uh, similar regional attitudes around what is a good program and what is not between Ukraine, um, Russia, Russian Olympic committee. Um, cause that's the, they're not allowed to have their flag at the games still. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
you know, places like Georgia, they all tend to train in a similar style and have programs that sort of reflect similar aesthetic values. I mean, so similar to ballet, right? Like we are familiar with that. So are there different like techniques? Like we would define different techniques in ballet? Absolutely. So it's interesting because there are some Russians who really exhibit that classical technique that looked like before they ever took the ice, they were definitely in a ballet studio mm-hmm. right? where body line is very much a part of this and the quality of the fundamentals. Like think about how gradually we build a ballet technique. That same level of care seems to be inside their skating. Right. right. If you're watching the pairs event in however many days away it is, um, it is Tarasova and Morozov have that exemplary Russian technique. Mm-hmm. When they come out for that six minute warm up, they're not doing huge throws at to start. They're not sort of like just shaking it out. They just do fundamental stroking. And within like half a rink, they're like flying around the ice and they're silent and they're like holding each other's hands. And it is just the wildest energy. Like I have goosebumps just talking about it because no one else on the ice can do it. And like, everyone knows, like all the other pairs know this and they just come out and they're like, this is us now that we can be that consistent with every other element that they do. But, um, (laughs) the shade it's true. It's true. They're not the reigning world champions. Another Russian pair is, Mm -hmm. um, it's been a big problem. And so we're it's fingers crossed for them, honestly. But you have that feeling of like very clean technical style within um, certain skaters and certain regions, but you also have various values. So in different disciplines. So in the men's event, a lot of push towards jumping for them. It is a projection of masculine values to be doing the hardest jumps and the most jumps. Mm-hmm. And if that means that the rest of the program is kind of empty and does not create a cohesive big picture performance to them. The jumps are the paramount thing to be doing. So they would disagree with me that they're like, it doesn't detract this. This is the whole point of men's skating. Mm -hmm. Right. But we disagree in the United States. We, we want both. That really came about with a Canadian skater about 10 years ago named Patrick Chan, who Mm -hmm. He could do both. Get you a skater who can do both. I love it. Yeah. Um, So we took to Instagram today, Kate, and we said that we were having you on the pod and we asked people if they had questions for you and we got some. So we want to give the people what they want and get into some of these questions. Um, So there's increasing focus on quote, proper classical technique and figure skating yet ballet and skating come from very different origin stories. Um, can we talk about if there is and isn't any overlap both in the past and now some of it we've hit on? Yes, I would say under the 6.0 system. So that's up until it was unveiled in the mid two thousands and the first Olympics that the IJS, the new num- numerical system, that's non 6.0 was in the Torino Olympics in 2006, but in the 6.0 system, especially through the nineties, there was just a lot more space in a program for you to experiment with choreography. There were some requirements that have 
I was sad. Well, I had mixed feelings about a spiral sequence where you hold a position and you're holding an edge of your blade and you're carving it out. And so, so many of the iconic moments that people think about when they think of figure skating, like Michelle Kwan holding this like inside edge spiral with that leg out at the crescendo mm-hmm. of the music. Mm-hmm. That is not a program requirement anymore. And so like, I miss it because those were the high moments, but like, I don't miss seeing people who couldn't do a good spiral, do a good, do a spiral, right? Yeah. Like, thank you so much. Yeah. But there's not an opportunity for them to do it if they want to. Karen Chen has a lovely one for the United States, but it's literally like the requirements are so packed mm-hmm. that- there's, she can not really hold it. She has to go do the things that she's required to do. Right. I would say in the 6.0 system, we saw a lot more of ballet and figure skating being hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when the IJS was unveiled, it codified how to get points or how you can be deserving of points. And so one of the things that that unintentionally did because I don't think it was anyone's hope that this would happen, but unfortunately it did was when they were describing what makes step sequence choreography difficult, it's moving your legs and your arms and your head in line with the music, which to us is port de bras, épaulement, and then like whatever the step is. Right. right. And that is clearly what they meant, but they wanted to just talk about it in general language. Now, for a while we have windmill people. So they're like, you want me to move my arm? Like, okay, I'm going to move my arm. And it's yeah. just like, no. oh, <laughs> got a big old open hand on the end of it. There are no, like, there's no fingers. There are no, right. there's not a common vocabulary around where should the arms be? Where should the head be? So you'll see people who still borrow from ballet, but because what's considered good just means move your arms and your head in time to the music. Like you don't know what you're really going to get. And so over the past like 15 years, we've really seen people just like move away from ballet if they felt that that was too restrictive. Right. And it's now we're, we're moving our arm and our head and our and, and our leg at the same time, but is it pointed? Is it stretched? Is it turned out? Is it behind us? I mean, granted, I will say everyone's always asking like, why isn't the leg behind them? I learned very early on that that will make you fall over. Um, (laughs) That is a heavy boot. That's a heavy leg. We've got to use the blade. Yes. So Alice is Alice Basque, but also Camila, her arabesque is gorgeous. I don't don't even care. I just call it an arabesque. I'm like, it's an arabesque. It's beautiful. (laughs) My arabesque is like at a 95 at this point. And hers is just like, (laughs) but her hips hips also like so open and extended. It just adds to the line. It's so pretty. This is another good one from Instagram. Um, What's a triple sow cow and how can the world tell the difference between that and all the other jumps? Great question. A triple sow cow. So the families of jumps depend on what edge of the blade your standing leg is on Okay. combined with whether you are getting yourself into the air by tapping into the ice or Mm -hmm. jetting, brushing up into the ice. They don't actually say that, right? You're just explaining it for us. I am using the ballet word. No, I like it. I just, I was just wondering if they actually used it. Yeah. 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 No, it helps me. Then I understand. (laughs) Yes. And so if I were doing a triple sow cow, which like, LOL, first of all, I should also say another interesting (laughs) thing is they all turn counterclockwise. So they turn what we consider to the left more naturally. So they, 
turn to the left and they land on their right leg. Whereas we generally feel more comfortable turning to the right and landing on our left leg. Are there ready's and lefties? Funny. There must be. There are. And wow, a six minute warm up with a lefty is like just, I hope oh, no. you have armrests or a friend you can dig the, your fingernails into their leg or something because <laughs> every pattern that someone does to set up a jump is like the mirror image with right. And it's just much more orderly if everyone's going on the same, same thing as ballet, right. much more orderly if everyone's going to the same side, right? Sure. sure. So a triple sal cow is if I'm a ballet dancer, so I'm going to be turning to the right over my mm-hmm. right shoulder. I'm standing on my right leg. My left leg is actually in front of me and it's going to jete in front of me, scoop me up. And I'm kind of feeling like an on day or feeling because my legs with mm-hmm. my left leg in front of me, standing on my right leg. I'm turning towards the opening of my legs. I'm not turning against my lower body. So that is, and then I rotate three times and then I land on my left leg. So that's what a triple sal cow is. You switch legs because you start on your right and then you land onto your left. Okay. Sure do. So it's a jeté entry and you'll see the, the foot really brush hard in front of the standing leg. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Love it. Another question that I really, really loved was why don't they ever spot? This person says, my family always asks me, and I certainly do not know. (laughs) Great question. I I have a theory, which I have checked with one skater who, who said that sounds right. (laughs) And I was like, okay, and I'm right. Verified. Um, I know. Right. Uh, There was actually one skater who did. And what's interesting is that I think our rotational speed and pirouettes is still much, much slower than theirs. And so. Yes. Our brains are still very much using our vision for balance at the rotational speed that we use in pirouettes. Mm -hmm. So keeping our field of vision still for as long as possible allows us to keep from getting dizzy. Right. There is some threshold beyond which when you are spinning that quickly, your brain stops using your eyes for balance. So it's like stuff is getting weird. I will check (laughs) back in when you stop doing this to yourself. Right. So it's really like when they're spinning really fast or when they're jumping and rotating, like they often have their eyes closed or they're staring at their hands, which are also spinning with them. So you'll see them like when they go to do a catch foot into a Beelman or when they're jumping, you'll see them kind of like looking up and they're just not, their brain is not really using their visual field for balance as much. Um, and then it'll check back in when they actually land it. So, so much of these jumps, rather than about it, like being connected to the ground, like we are in a pirouette and needing to maintain that balance through every single rotation, your energy is really put into the takeoff and the timing of that takeoff and the angle that you're entering the air and then the landing. Oh, so fascinating. I know. One other thing I was thinking recently, Kate, is it new that they put their hands over their head when they do jumps? Now I'm seeing a lot of hands overhead work and I love it. Yeah. It's a rip on feature. Oh, yeah. A little eponymous here. So Adam Rippon, actually let's really dive into this origin story for one minute. Brian Boitano had a Tano Lutz, which was one hand overhead. And this was considered the eminent feature of you know, elevated men's skating from 1988 onward. And so Adam Rippon was training with Brian Boitano's rival, competitive rival from, you know, at this point, 20 years ago, named Brian Orser, who is based in Canada. And he was training 
a Tano Lutz. His favorite, his jump that he always liked the most was the Lutz. So he was doing a Tano Lutz. And then he was like, it honestly felt like really weird to be doing a Tano Lutz with my coach being Brian Orser. <laughs> so I decided like, let me see if I can just like put both hands over my head. And it became a rip on Lutz. And then as part of the code of points, which is like the different rules about how to gain credit in mm-hmm. the scoring system to get more points in terms of the grade of execution, because each element that's performed has a base value and then gravy on top or deductions. If it's bad mm-hmm. gravy mm-hmm. on top, that's what the judges decide, like how much gravy once the technical mm-hmm. caller says, that's what the step is. If you put both arms over your head, that is considered gravy. We get some extra. Okay. Points there. So it is a rip on variation. So rip on axle, rip on loop, rip on sal cal, rip on flip. It. People tend not to call it that, but if you say it's a rip on Lutz, they'll know what you're talking about. Unless right. you're talking to a non-figure skating fan, which is amazing. <laughs> Why would you do that? I want to bring up just one last thing. This is going to be the last thing because we've gone over time. <laughs> this is so interesting. I just wanted to bring up for us all to discuss. So you're talking about Peacock, Kate, and I texted you that I did my first journey into figure skating this year on Peacock because I hadn't recorded anything and it had no commentary. And I was watching, I was like, I, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like I had no frame of reference. I didn't know if it was good. It was, it was almost like a bizarre feeling because I hadn't, I had never thought about it that way. You're just so used to hearing commentary. And so now I'm recording it and then getting the commentary. And now that I've gone from nothing to more, like I find how enriching it is. So my question I pose to you guys is, do we think that's something that could potentially be interesting for ballet, not in an actual performance situation, but when we're talking about, you know, digital dance and all of that, that we've moved into recently, do we think that there's a place for that? Cause like, I'm looking at figure skating as someone who's watching ballet and has no idea what they're looking at, knowing they like it, but don't really know why, you know? Right. I think there's a sign that people are interested in hearing the backstory of individuals experiences to that moment where they're performing something that flash foot. it's not flash footage. It's the New York city ballet behind the scenes, those little vignettes they have yeah, it's like that. Yeah. Where they sit down and they talk about it. And it's like the voiceover continues over yeah, the segment true. that the person's talking about. I've always found that really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think what's hard is that with ballet, we have, a smaller community of fans and followers who are ardent ballet interest. And so they're coming for like a, a theater experience, a meditative experience. Mm -hmm. If they're going on to a video, they're usually looking for maybe something else with figure skating. There's so much pressure because suddenly every four years you have a whole bunch of people who maybe are watching it for the first time or watching it for the first time in four years. Right. And so that attention, like they're not sitting down to have a theater experience. They're sitting down to understand who's going to win. Is it the person that I'm watching right now? And <laughs> right. if it's not the person that I'm watching right now, entertain me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. So they'll start talking somewhat, okay. but I do think that there's an opportunity, like look at how exciting, like talkbacks can be what you guys are doing. Um, to let people have a window into the people behind what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just think like even the specific things that are happening, right? Like in the moment 
other than just like the story of the individual, which is things that we do. But then also, I mean, we have had moments on the pod, like when we were talking with Megan Fairchild, she was talking about specific moments and theme and variations. Then it would be great to have a visual reference to that. I don't right. know, Mikey, what do you think? Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's people have tried, but I guess, yeah, we, I think um, well, we'd have a lot to say. <laughs> is it for us? Maybe it's for us. Yeah, Maybe it's for us. Career transition for COD. <laughs> no, yeah. career addition for COD. <laughs> Maybe that's why I was thinking about it. I don't know. I thought it was cool, but Kate, thank you. This has been yeah. so fascinating. So good. So informative. Thank you so and... much for having me. I hope everyone really enjoys watching. There's lots of exciting performances coming. So keep an eye out. Um, USA has incredible ice dance teams, really wonderful, wonderful performers in the women's discipline. And I'm excited to see pairs as well. Like it's just, it's one of those times where I'm just like rotating between the flags that I'm waving. So um, <laughs> that's, that's what's exciting about being a figure skating fan too. You have people from all around the world that you just want to show up and do really well, you know, mm. have that capstone moment that they've been working so hard for, for so long. That's so fun. Well, thank you, Kate. We Thanks, appreciate Kate. it. Good to see you thank as you. always. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.